And we're going to start chapter 10. Um, my goal today is to read one sentence. I don't expect to actually finish explaining the sentence, but to read one sentence and get as far as we can in explaining one sentence. This is an ambitious goal. Does everyone have the text? You don't, not everyone has the text. Can someone volunteer to make sure everyone has the text by going to get copies or something? Okay. Now. I gave it you last. Okay. Now. What I'm going to do is I'm going to first read the sentence. And then I will explain the sentence very generally. And then I will point out how we have no idea what the sentence actually means and start to try and make sense of it little bit by little bit. Okay? Behold. It's a word we don't use anymore, right? Okay. When a person fortifies his divine soul and wages war against his animal soul to such an extent that he expels and eradicates its evil from the left part, as it is written, and you shall root out the evil from within you. Yet, the evil is not actually converted to goodness. He is called incompletely righteous or a righteous man who suffers. There you go. We read the whole sentence. Well, I read it and you listened, so it's a cooperative effort. Halakhically listening counts as talking. So... So what does that sentence say? It says, well, there's a person and they strengthen their divine soul, the godly soul, and fight against the animal soul. And they do such a good job that they expel, they eradicate the evil from the animal soul, but they don't actually transform the animal soul into good. Then they get the title an incomplete righteous person, or in Hebrew, a tzaddik she'en gomer. They are not completely righteous. Or they're also called a righteous man who suffers, um, it, it sounds better in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's called it's tzaddik virale, which means a righteous person who has bad. Okay? That's the sentence. Today, we're going to focus on the question, which is, how many um, parts of you are mentioned, parts of a person are mentioned in this sentence? So look at the text. I'm going to actually make you look inside the text and count how many different parts of a person are mentioned in this text. That one sentence. You have four. Does anyone have more than four? More than four. Does anyone have three? Two? Everyone's in agreement that there's four. Well, it, there could be five. What? You see three. Okay, good. I'm glad we have a dispute. It's very Jewish. If we all agree, I don't know. 
It's not, it's not so Jewish. Anyone say two? I feel like I'm at an auction. On <laughs> Simcha's Torah. Where's this room? Nope, it works. Okay. There we go. Okay, so the people have no idea what I just said, but moving on. Now, so we have four, we have three. Anyone say that there are two parts of first mentioned in the sentence? No one's going what for two. Was the question? How many parts of a person are, how many parts, like, if, assuming it's talking about a person, assuming you're the person, how many parts of you are mentioned in this sentence? So, I saw five. You saw five. The first sentence. Behold, when a person fortifies his divine soul and wages war against his animal soul to such an extent that he expels and eradicates his evil from the left's part, as is written, and you shall root out the evil from within you, yet if the evil is not actually converted to goodness, he is called incompletely righteous or a righteous man who suffers. How many parts of a person are mentioned in that sentence? We have three. We've had an argument for five or three. No one's saying two, though. No. Okay. So let's go. Um, let's take our smallest number. The, who said there are three? What are the three that you've seen in that sentence? Divine soul, good. Uh-huh. I let, you know. Abhavis, animal soul, too. And then I saw Halal Asmali, the left side. The left side. The left side, okay. The left side, good, okay. So that's three. Um, so the person who said four. I'm counting the person, that's sort of like a The draw. person, okay, that's good. Yeah, okay. So if we count the person as distinct, then we get four. And we had a taker for five. Even. The evil. It's very good. So we could divide the... There's the evil in the animal soul, right? Because it says there's the evil. It eradicates the evil. It's evil, right? So the it being the animal soul, it apparently contains... Goodness. I don't know if it contains goodness, but it contains evil. Righteous. You fight a war against the animal soul and eradicates its evil. What's its evil? The evil of the animal soul. So is the animal soul in general, and then there's the evil in the animal soul. What's being eradicated, the animal soul itself, or the evil within it? The evil, okay. What? I don't know. That's why we're having this discussion. Okay, so you're all right. Let's, let's go through this. So first off, um, we, the, the, to say that there are three is correct, to say there are four correct, to say there are five correct, it depends on how you want to categorize things. Okay? So to say that there are um, four because you're including the left side is fine. It, it does mention the left side. Um, but we're going to exclude that from our count. Not because it's not mentioned, it is mentioned, but because the left side is a reference to what? Does anyone know what the left side is a reference to? The heart, right? It's referring to a part of the body where the animal soul resides. And so because for the purpose of our discussion today, we want to focus on the more spiritual dimensions, we're going to leave the left side out of the equation. So yes, it does mention the left side of your body or left side of your heart where the animal soul resides, but we're not going to set that aside. We're also for today going to set aside the, the evil of the animal soul versus the animal soul itself. Not because that's not relevant, but because that is a important subdivision. I want to talk about the more general distinction between the animal soul, there's the godly soul, um, and as someone pointed out, there's also the person. Now, should we think of the person as 
And this is the question I want to ask. Should we think of the person as a distinct entity from the divine and animal soul? Or should we think of the person as the totality of the divine and the animal soul? Read this sentence. In this sentence here, I'm not asking you the term the person everywhere in every text you ever read. In this sentence, does the term a person refer to a different entity than the divine soul and the animal soul? Or is it referred to the totality of, of the entire person, animal soul, and God the soul put together? Yes. Prove it. I'll fight you. And also, yeah, right, okay. And he fights with his um, animal soul. So it's saying like there's the different things that belong to Okay. So you're, you want, you're, you're, you're making your argument from the fact that he uses possessives. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a bad argument. I told you I'd fight you. Okay. Um, for instance, I can say my hand, and I don't think of my hand as a separate entity from me. I think it's part of me, right? Um, we often use possessives when we talk about the relationship of a whole to its parts. In fact, I just did so right now. I said the whole to its parts, right? So the use of a possessive doesn't mean that it's a distinct entity. It could be that the person refers to the totality and that person is comprised of an animal soul and a godly soul, right? So that's not a, that wording, that grammar doesn't really indicate that it's a separate entity. They want to make a different argument. Yeah. Right. External right. The verbs seem to imply that, right? The person is fortifying the divine soul. It's waging a war against animal soul, right? It sound, it, the, the, when you look at those verbs, those activities, that sounds like an external entity is acting in relation to... It's like consciousness outside of... Right. right. And so from here, the tradition is that this is actually referring to a third entity, which is not the godly soul and not the animal soul. Okay? This is known traditionally in Hasidic literature as the rational soul. In Hebrew, this is known as nefesh hasichlis, the rational soul. Okay? Now, for the rest of today's class, presumably, although, I mean, if we end up getting through this faster, then we'll move on to the next point. What I would like to dedicate today's class to is understanding the rational soul and what it is and how it stands in relationship to the more familiar godly and animal souls that are discussed in Tanya that you probably have heard mentioned in other classes. Okay? And then to take that understanding and put it back in the sense and understand what does it mean that the, the rational soul, i.e. the person, is fortifying the divine soul, what it means it's waging a war against the animal soul. Okay? Then what's the fourth person? Oh. You said there's four. I said there's, there, you could count five parts in this sentence, there would be the person, i.e. the rational soul, the divine soul, the animal soul, the evil in the animal soul, which is being treated as something distinct, right? And the left side of the heart where the animal soul resided. But we're only talking about these three. But for today's class, I'm not interested in talking about the body, the part of the body where the animal soul lives, so I'm gonna ignore that. And this idea of the evil of the animal soul versus the animal soul at large, we're, gonna, we're going to have as a, a subsequent class. Rather, you can see what I say, what I mean, that we're not rushing through this chapter. Yeah. Okay, all right, good. Fine. So, 
So for this, um, what I want to do is I want to take a step back and ask a question. Um, people have heard the idea there's a divine soul, there's an animal soul, and that creates a lot of conflict, right? The divine soul, as we mentioned in last Wednesday, the divine soul seeks out God, right? And the animal soul seeks out what? Life, yeah? Okay. And that creates some conflicts, right? Now, the Tanya teaches us that only Jews have a divine soul. Um, we will bracket all of the political correctness questions about what about non-Jews and aren't they good people, blah, blah, blah. We'll separate that for later. I mean, you can ask me that. We have a questions and answer class, but we're not going to talk about it today. I'm just going to ask a question about reality. Do non-Jews experience spiritual conflicts? So how would the time to explain that if they don't have godly souls? Okay, but they still only have one soul, so why do they have spiritual conflict? Well, so what you're saying is that essentially a non-Jew spiritual conflict is like my conflict of being tired and hungry. I'm too tired to go up myself something to eat, but I'm too too hungry to go to sleep and so I sit there on the couch doing nothing and, and there's not like there's nothing really profound about that it's just the you know the unfortunate consequence of desiring two mutually exclusive things and so the non-Jew on the one hand really likes pizza on the other hand really likes to live a moral life and they're just basically different ways of feeling good and you can't do both because if you eat pizza all day you end up being a glutton that, that's that, that's the extent of it there's no there, there's not really fundamentally two different aspects of themselves in conflict with each other, just they want things that in reality you can't have them all together. It's like a more refined animal soul than, than eating a hungry animal. Why is it more refined? Yeah, but at the end of the day, all it cares about is feeling more alive. So it's not really like a deep existential conflict about like how to live life. It's just a practical thing. There's trade-off, right? If you go to sleep, you'll be hungry. If you're hungry, if you go eat, then you have to schlep out of the couch and go do something, right? And so you're saying is like if you want that that quality of like living a living a life of doing good, you don't get that if you sit around eating you know potato chips all day. And if you want to have the luxury of sitting around eating potato chips so that you have to forego like feeling like you're doing something important and meaningful and like you just have to pick which one you want and that's it but there's nothing there's no deep existential conflict there it's a matter of personal preference or mood okay so what you're basically saying is that a non-Jew is incapable of having a true existential crisis from the perspective of the Tanya it's just a matter of I like this thing, I like this thing, and I can't have both. Well, Hasidus would disagree. Hasidus says non-Jews do have true existential conflict. Because they have something called a rational soul, which is distinct from the animal soul. And so what we're going to do for the beginning is we're first going to talk about the rational soul and the animal soul as it exists in a non-Jew. And then we will then take from there and adjust the concept as it exists in a Jew. Okay? So,
the animal soul, or sometimes called the natural soul. Its agenda is it wants to live. So what is absolutely unacceptable to the animal soul, to the natural soul? What is, what is not up for discussion? Risking your life, the animal soul would never risk its life. I want you to see what for the animal soul is completely, which is irrelevant. Just don't, you can't even bring that topic up. What? Giving up enjoyment. Um... But the animal soul can realize like there's something called delayed gratification. Like if you delay enjoyment now, you'll have more later. Sacrifice? Sacrifice. That's something. There's no concept of sacrifice. It is a concept of investment. Let's differentiate between sacrifice and investment. Investment is where I'm exchanging something that is le- worth less to me in order to have something that's worth more, more right? Would you rather have a dollar today or a dollar and 10 cents in a year from now? No, this is what I'm asking you, really. Which one would you prefer? A dollar What? A dollar now or a dollar. And 10 cents a year from now. Which one would you rather have? dollar now. No. 10 cents a <laughs> Yeah, except if you got a 10% in a return on your investment, um, what's that called? Annual, if you got a 10% return on your investment annually, what's that called? A really good investment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, right, so there's a question like in delayed gratification, you have a sense of proportionality, right? These are all sorts of things, right? So, you know, the animal soul is perfectly willing in principle, given if it, wisdom and maturity, to give up eating pizza if it's lactose intolerant because it's just not worth it, right? Or to save your money so that you can not go into debt when you need to go to school or whatever the case might be, right? Or for that matter, if you happen to be spiritually aware, not indulge in all the sinful pleasures of this world because you want to go to heaven, you don't want to burn in hell, right? But it's the same idea, right? That's, that's not sacrifice. What is that? Investment. That's investment. Okay. I'm going to tell you a story about from World War I. World War I was a crazy war. Um, what? Um, did you ever read anything about World War I? Okay. So World War I, basically the way they fought the war was they were really good at defending. And they were very bad at attacking. They were very good at defending because they invented things like machine guns. And they were very bad at attacking because they still believed in charging. So you can see how this is not going to work very well. You have a bunch of people charging the line and a bunch of people defending the line with machine guns. Right. So people died by the millions. It was, it was, it was crazy. And so literally what would happen is every so often some commanding officer would get in line and get the idea that now we need to really press the assault and tell the men over the trenches and they'll all rush over the trench and they'll all get mowed down and like, you know, 10% of them would survive and rush back to the trenches. And then this would happen again a few weeks later. It's very demoralizing. Then they were being shelling. It was, it was a horrific thing. And um, there was a French soldier, probably not even 18 years old, probably 16, 17 years old who did what most reasonable people do, which is he ran away, because that's crazy, right? And he was caught. 
And uh, what is the punishment for desertion in wartime? Death. Death. So he was caught, and he's being held by these two soldiers who are, I don't know if they were officially MPs, whatever he's being held. And one of the French generals is driving by, and he sees that there's these two soldiers standing guard over this, this young guy. And he, the, the young person looks very distraught, and he stops and asks what's going on. They say, well, he was caught deserting, and so he's, he was court-martialed, and he's going to go be shot. And the general looks at him and feels a tremendous amount of compassion. And so he decides to intervene. Now, at this point, you're thinking, oh, this is good. Like, the general saved his life. That's not what happens. What happens is like this. The general goes to the young man and says, do you love your country? early 1900s, the age of nationalism, right? Of course he loves his country. Do you want to serve your countries? Yes. You realize that if people just flee the lines, the Germans are going to take over France. Right? And when one person flees, it weakens the morale of everybody. By you being executed, you strengthen the sense of all the other soldiers that they cannot flee. You can serve your country by being executed. And he was a general, right? And those generals, they have the ways of like really really giving it to him. And the way the story goes is that this 16, 7 year old walked to the post with his head held high knowing that he's going to serve his country by being shot. Now, what's that? Is that... I'm not talking... I'm not talking about... I'm not talking... I'm not talking about the general. I want to talk about the soldier. What is that... Is he investing in something in the future? Is he giving up something now so he has something better later? What better later thing does he have? He has nothing. Yes, but in the moment that he's walking from that conversation to, to dying, he has now gained a sense of purpose. And so he's willing to die in order to have purpose? Does that sound like a good investment? He's willing to like... This is the guy who was willing to run away. Why is he willing to die for purpose? And that what I want to, I'm using this to illustrate something about people in general. It's not you know, him as a special unique case. Okay. okay so so the, way, the way Hasidus would explain this is like this. People need food, but you're not willing to die for food. People need all sorts of things because those things, your life depends on them. Not just the mere existence of your life, but also the quality of your life. Okay? But the thing the animal soul never questions is whether life is worth living at all. It takes for granted life is worth living. Now the question is how to make sure you stay alive and how do you make sure that while you're alive, that quality of life is good. But whether life is itself a justifiable thing or not is never a question the animal soul asks and is never bothered by it. It's out of the question. The rational soul is fundamentally bothered by the question, what justifies life? And without a justification of life, sees no reason to perpetuate it. So the rational soul and the animal soul in a certain sense, in a certain sense, we'll come back to later, it's not absolute, are opposites. The animal soul is fine with purpose if purpose does what? If it enhances the quality of my life. You know, obviously living life with purpose feels better than living life without purpose, right? 
But what is the ultimate end? The ultimate end is life. And purpose is a means to what? To enhance the quality of life. For the rational soul, life without purpose is worthless. Life without purpose is not even less than worthless. It's a travesty. It's an abomination. Life needs to be justified, and without being justified, it should not continue to exist. And therefore, when the rational soul sees that the question is between life and versus purpose, what will the rational soul do? What? It will pick purpose over life every time. Now, what did this general do? This general used his, you know, I mean, he's a general for a reason. He used his skills as a general to draw out some sense of this young man's rational soul and identify it with the purpose of patriotism to bring him to a state where he didn't feel so miserable about dying. Now, we could think that was a moral act, an immoral act. I don't want to get into that, right? But the fact is there was something latent in that young man, which was some part of him, not his animal soul, a very deep latent part, not a part he was very aware of, had this sense that life is not valuable in and of itself. Life needs to be justified. And without it being justified, there's no point in it continuing. The rational soul does not see life as valuable. It sees life as something that needs um, a justification. It needs, it needs a purpose. It needs to be in service of something else. Otherwise, it's an abomination. Otherwise, it's a tragedy. What happens if you have a rational soul and that rational soul becomes very dominant in the person and the person becomes convinced that there is no purpose? What will that person do? Kill themselves. Kill themselves. There's a whole genre of philosophers who came to that place. Yes, unfortunately. People who really, this notion that life needs to be justified became a very dominant part of their psyche and failed to find something that truly justifies life. And therefore, they ended it. I'm not arguing that that's a good thing or a bad thing. What I just want to point out is that there is a totally other aspect of our psyche. Now, we, um, remember we had the class, those of you who were in the L about Russia, and Rosh Hashanah, we spoke about a king. And I mentioned how king is a, one of the issues that we live in a culture that really de-emphasizes and goes against the idea of kingship. We also live in a culture very much that de-emphasizes the idea of the rational soul. We like to reduce everything back to animal soul terms. So we can speak about purpose. But our cultural tends to speak about purpose as why is purpose important? Because without purpose, what's so bad without purpose then? What? Life is empty. And what's so bad about life being empty? It's not worth living, really? It's really, that's our culture speaks, it's not worth living? It doesn't have a good quality of life. You're the different? Well, not worth living means that, well, okay, if really, if really we can't find purpose, then, then it would be perfectly reasonable and moral and the right thing to do just end it. Because, right? But that's not how our cultures think about it, right? Have there historically been cultures that are like that? That, that really do focus much more that, on the idea that life is not intrinsically valuable. Life needs, needs to be justified by something higher than itself. Yeah, there, there have been cultures like that. They can be quite demanding and harsh cultures, too. Now, I don't want to get into the culture aspect. I'm just bringing it up so it's aware is that culture influences how you can take something and, and twist it to fit your cultural expectations. Every person, right now I'm not talking about Jews, Jews, non-Jews, just like Jews, have a, God, have a rational soul and an animal soul. 
And rational soul doesn't mean that it's smart. What it means is it seeks out to rationalize its own existence. And if it cannot rationalize its own existence, it sees no point in it. Is the rational soul the neshama? No. And the animal soul, which is also something called the natural soul, just takes its existence for granted and seeks to preserve it and enhance it. Yeah, they're really opposing. Okay? It's like, you've got a guy who has a business, right? And he has the consult, asked the consultant to come by. And, and there's some miscommunication because he wants the consultant to advise him on how to make his business more successful. But the consultant is coming and like looking like objectively, like, is the business worth perpetuating? Because a business is just there for the sake of making money, right? The business has no intrinsic value, right? And he looks at the business like, this business is like, this doesn't justify itself, right? There's no, like you need to just close up shop and you can start a different business. And you can imagine that conversation is not going to go very well, right? Okay. Now, I want to be clear. A soul can be manipulated, right? So just like we all understand the animal soul can become convinced that eating a lot of junk food enhances the quality of life and then becomes very hard for the animal soul to stop even though the truth is that it actually destroys your quality of life. The rational soul could be convinced that something which does not really justify existence really does. And, right? So for instance, I might die for some stupid thing like, I don't know, to make sure that the czar is happy, which is like not really, like, that's not really, okay. But the point is not what you think enhances the quality of life or what you believe justifies existence. But the very fact that there's a part of you that is driven and needs that. There's a part of every human being, again, this is nothing unique to Jews, that has the sense that I'm not a cow. It can't just be that, that it's all about perpetuating my existence and enjoying the process while it happens. That, that can't be it. Because if that's all there is, then, then there's some part of the person which just rebels and says, then that's garbage. That, that's, that's an abomination. That's a tragedy. That's disgusting. I can't handle that. I need something, something much more noble, something much more exalted that justifies getting up and going through the motions of life. And by the way, when, you, when that part of you becomes very strong, you become a, a deeper person. Right? Hopefully you find something, otherwise you have all sorts of crisis. Okay? Now, I'm kind of making it very extreme to highlight the difference but the thing is to realize that even when the, 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 everybody has this, just sometimes it's more subtle, sometimes it's more dominant, sometimes it's more obvious. Okay? So does it make sense that a non-Jew could feel a real conflict between dying for their country and saving their family? And what is that conflict? I mean, in real life it could be anything, but for purposes of our illustration, why do they feel that dying for their country is what they should do? Yeah, because the, the country has some sort of deep intrinsic purpose and value to it. And my life doesn't really have any meaning on its own. Its meaning comes from the service of my country. So if the way, if, if, if now it's a question between my country and my life, I should give my life. On the other hand, the animal soul is like, what do you mean? <laughs> Dying or, you know, what about the perpetuating yourself in the quality of your life? You could run away and save your family. And that's a real conflict, right? And that's not just a conflict of what makes you feel better, what you enjoy more. It's a much more fundamental kind of conflict. Family comes from your animal Could come from either. Because it depends on how you see it. A lot of family does come from the animal soul. Because let's be honest, how does it feel to be with family? And for many of us, what actually drives our attachment to family is 
how it affects the quality of our life. Not always. But something, something like the conflict between saving your family or dying for your country. Like, having purpose in your family. You could. I'm not... I, what, I, I, the problem with talking about souls is that souls are, are before the concrete. You could have the same thing, right? For instance, you could have the, 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 the animal soul want to give charity, give tzedakah. You could have the rational soul want to give tzedakah. You could have the godly soul want to give tzedakah. But what they see in it and why they feel the need to do it could be entirely different. So I'm using examples of things to reflect more on the soul. But you're, you're right. You could have family coming from the rational soul as well. In fact, let's actually use that example. Why is it, going back to the culture, why is it um, that we have a concept in modern culture called no-fault divorce. You know what no-fault divorce is? No-fault divorce means that you do not need to justify getting divorced to the government. Do you want to get divorced? You say, well, I'm no longer into this marriage, and the court says, okay, marriage resolved. When did that change, anyone know? Like, historically? Recently. Recently. The United States around the 1970s. Depending on the state. Yeah. Depends on the state, but let's say average 1970s. Also depends if you're talking in Europe, it's different, but... 70s into the 80s, depending on where you're talking about. Okay. Before then, what was the rule? If you wanted to get divorced, how did it work? You would have to justify why the marriage should be dissolved. And if you can't provide a valid justification, then the marriage is not dissolved. So what's the difference? Like, well, it's not just that technical difference. There's a whole difference in conception about marriage. What's changed? That's true, but the, it went along with a major cultural shift. Mar- marriage is good for society, and raising families is good. It's a good thing. So you can't just lose all marriages. Right, and so and, and. And the idea that your community is responsible for your community. Right. For, right. In other words, marriage was much more understood as a manifestation of which soul? The rational. The rational soul. Marriage is a, is marriage is like this. Going to your point is that. Fam- you, there's, being, there's the service to the family. There's the, the family, the way the family serves the community, right? And so you can't just break that up because you don't enjoy it. Like, it doesn't work. That doesn't make sense. That's a dereliction of duty, if you will. And that's a bit of a harsh way of putting it. Okay? What's the other conception of marriage? That what is marriage meant to facilitate? So, and like, now you add to that the idea of personal autonomy. If like, I have made a decision that this does not enhance the quality of my life anymore, who are you to tell me I have to continue? Mm-hmm. Right, so, like, that's a real conflict in how you think about what marriage is for, right? Is marriage, are, in other words, are you serving, are, are, are you there for the marriage or is the marriage there for you? That doesn't mean like marriage is meant to be an act of like sacrifice, like dying for your country. Like, like uh, successful marriages are generally go along with high quality of life. But, but I'm talking about just a fundamental starting point, right? The rational soul and the natural soul, the animal soul, they're really operating in a very different way. By the way, what's the, which, which is the Jewish concept of marriage? Which one is it more like? I mean, really, ultimately, everything's the godly soul. But if we had to... It's much more like the rational soul. Right? Does Jewish marriage have a concept of no-fault divorce? No. 
There's no such concept of the four In the halacha, I don't get into all the legalities of it. If you want, you can ask me questions and answers. But the, in practice, um, whoever wants to make the marriage continue has the upper legal hand in Jewish law. That's just the bottom line. There's a lot of technicalities and there's not exactly gender equal, but on just on a basic thing, um, and Jewish law basically, in almost any disagreement between the parties, the party that's interested in preserving the marriage is given deference. Okay? But that really does change things. Okay? Let's talk about nothing. Um, scientists. Not like modern scientists that like, you know, go to university and get a good job and are respected members of society. Like people who um, have to you know, ration their daily food intake because they're penniless and they're doing re- research on something that has no practical relevance. You know, the scientists of old, right, before science became popular. What was motivating that? Right, there's a sense that, like, if there's a truth to the universe and a mind who doesn't, desert, doesn't quest to know that it isn't worth living, it's just like, what's the point? And so you have, like, you know, these, these, you know, these people who would, who would literally give up all sorts of things to quest to know. And that knowledge would not necessarily recognized in their lifetime. You know, people that are, the, you know, it, it, it's fascinating if you look at the, the amount of knowledge people had, like, say, about astronomy in the ancient world, in the medieval world, and how much time that took and how much investment that took. And they go, what is that for? Like, what are they? They're not building rocket ships. But there were people who had the sense that Right? Or, the, or the mathematicians. There were people who, like, they, 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 there was no prestigious university positions. But, and they're, they're using all their free time. They're neglecting their quality of life. They're not making money. They're, they're, their marriages are suffering because they have to figure out, is there only one kind of infinity or are there many kinds of infinity? Like, why? What, what is driving you to that? That there's something inside that says mere existing and enhancing quality of life is pathetic. That can't be what it is about. I'm going to ask you a question. What differentiates a person from an animal? Okay, that's physically, metaphysically. What do animals not have that people have, all people? Rational souls. So much so that some commentators actually say when it says that, that people were created in the image of God, what it means is the ability to value truth for truth's sake. God values truths for its own sake, and people have that aspect of themselves. And again, is that unique to Jews? No. Okay. And that's what makes us a person, as opposed to an animal. Not... Otherwise, we're just very sophisticated animals. Now, let's be honest. Most of our life, are we living life as people or are we living life as sophisticated animals? Right? We're very creative and we use a lot of intellect and both abstract intellect and social intellect in order to navigate the world around us and ourselves to, to the best of our ability, enhance our quality of life and preserve it. No, we're just, that's a matter of degree. Because animals do that too. They're just not as good at it. We have more, like, more, but more is not the thing. I mean, there's something we have that they don't have at all, and there's something that we're just better at. If I want to eat, I can be very creative as to how to get food. 
a chimpanzee is not as creative as I am as how to get food, but it will also problem solve to figure out how to get food. It will also make some tools. It will also develop interesting social structures to get what it needs. So the difference between me and the chimpanzee in terms of preserving my life and enhancing quality of my life is that I'm better at it than the chimpanzee. But the chimpanzee never stops. And then there's no part of himself that, 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 that says, well, maybe there's no point to this. Like, like if it's just a matter of just getting more termites and, and making more baby chimpanzees and like having a comfortable weather around you, then like, what's the point? That, that, they don't have that. They can't understand things that we can understand. They don't have that part of their... What don't they understand? That's true they can't understand complicated math, but why does that matter? So this is the answer. It matters in one for one of two reasons. Reason number one is because with complicated math, you can do all sorts of amazing things to enhance the quality of your life. So then what you're basically saying is the thing that I can do that they can't do is just I'm really good at solving problems in the world, and they're not as good. Or you could say, complicated, knowing complicated math means I'm getting access to some truth about the universe or reality or whatever you want to say, that that is a valuable thing in and of itself and that that actually justifies us coming into existence and living our lives. And in that sense, we are categorically different from the monkey. But I'm saying that just the fact that we have the knowledge is something that makes us different. But, so... Like so not just the... But but the but remember the ability to do this thing comes from the soul. So what comes first, the soul, or its or its ability? Our Our ability to think. Our ability to think. So our ability to think comes from our soul. Our rational soul seeks out something beyond itself to justify its existence. And so therefore it's implicitly c- capable of thinking very abstractly. Our animal soul is, seeks out to in- preserve and enhance the quality of its life. And so therefore it's capable of thinking about those things. Now, if those two things interact with each other, we can come up with very creative solutions about solving worldwide problems. But the underlying real difference between us and animals is that animals do not need to justify their being. They do not need to justify their life. So where does our, our like, superior ability to understand things come it's a consequence of the, It's a consequence of having a rational soul. Because you can't have a rational soul and not be able to think abstractly. You have to think about beyond yourself. And so that ability now then could get used in all sorts of ways, but it starts out as the quest for something to justify my own being. Okay, so is this, does this separate the rational soul from the animal soul clearly in your minds? Yes. Okay, now let's put them together. What do they have in common? Enhancing one. Well, I mean, one is justifying, one is enhancing, and I want to differentiate that, but, but they're all about, at the end of the day, the thing that has truly the, the focus is your own, your own life, your own self, right? They influence your well, that's true. That, 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 that's true, but I want to talk about them themselves. Like, what, like it, on some level, you could group them together and say that they're both self-oriented. It's all about me. I need something that justifies my existence, right? Like, who's more arrogant? The person who 
is a revolutionary who has to change the world, otherwise he feels his life is pointless, or the person who providing you know, for his middle class family is good enough. Who's more arrogant? Arrogant. arrogant? I didn't ask you who's arrogant, I asked you who's more arrogant. Yeah. There's one person, is a, one person is a professional revolutionary. You know professional revolutionaries? They don't exist so much anymore. Um, professional revolutionaries are people that like, their mission in life is to totally remake all of society. Not, not as a side project, like that's what they do. And they're just like waiting for the right time to like, you know, overthrow everything. And, and so in the meantime, they're like raising money, making organizations and... Uh, professional revolutionaries. They were very popular in the first half of the 20th century. They're still, but it's not like it was then. Then it was like a real, it was like a, it was a real, it was a big thing. No, because the thing is like this, if you look at just, if if, if everybody between the ages of 16 and 24 is a professional revolutionary, it's when you're, it's when you're 55 and you're still doing it, then you're a professional revolutionary. You understand what I'm saying? Like, Like, that's their whole life. Like, they don't have a job. They don't like, like, there's a stage of being a student and reactionary, like, and that's, that's what I'm talking about. Like, no, but, but the, you stay with it, right? And then, like, you get arrested and, like, you leave your country and, like, the whole, you know, professional revolutionaries. Okay. So there's that person. He's more arrogant. Yeah. And then there's the person who just, you know, wants to have a stable job and support their family. The revo- Why is the revolutionary more arrogant? Because they feel like they can change a whole way of life just by them. I don't know. Okay, okay. Or what, or okay, so, so, that, so, so I want to I wanna switch it slightly differently. I, I don't want I don't, I don't to say that, because that's, like, that, that, that's already, like, I think, hubris is like an inflated sense of, like, what you're capable of. No, they could be very rational that they're not capable of changing it all on their own. The reason why I think that they're more arrogant is because, for them, anything less than remaking society doesn't justify their existence. Mm. And this guy's like, what do you mean? My wife and kids have what to eat. That just, that, doesn't that justify my existence? Isn't that good enough? Have to remake society to justify life? In other words, the bigger of a purpose you need, the more of an inflated sense of your importance you have. So why is it, I mean, this might be very... I once, I once had a student in the men's program who, um, aside from other issues, suffered from this problem. And one time I told him, you know, you're really arrogant. You're just like, you're like wrapped up in yourself. He says, why? I'm always like asking you how to serve God better. It's because it's not about God. It's about you. Like, you've come to the conclusion that you are so important that the only thing that justifies your existence is if you are serving the ultimate being. And the ultimate being happens to be God. So God better have some very important tasks for you over the place. What's the point? It's like, no. You're not. It, it, it starts off with your need to have a justification that's worthy of the grandeur of your being. Like, that's where it's coming from. And he smiled sheepishly because he was caught in the act. Um, whatever. Yeah, there's a tremendous... Yeah, kind of of course we all kind of do it. We all have rational souls. Rational souls are, are not any less arrogant than animal souls. And there's an argument to make that in a certain sense in terms of like really having developed sense of self-importance is much more the rational soul than the animal soul. Yes, you were going to ask a question. There are people who like just... Like, is it being satisfied with less? Like, 
there's being... One of the problems that we're going to encounter is when I bring up examples is you can't explain every single phenomenon in the world. I'm using the examples to explain the idea in the text. I'm not using the idea in the text to explain it. Every single person who's unsatisfied has always come from the same place? No. No. But if you think about it, it should come make sense to you that the, the you know, think about... Some people seem just very unbothered. That's right. And, and, and sometimes that just comes because they just don't think that they're that big of a deal. Like, you know, okay, like, why do I have to know everything? Like, if I don't know the secrets of the universe, what's the big deal? And the other person's like, well, if you don't know the secrets of the universe, what's the point of living? <laughs> like, the second person kind of sounds a little bit more self-absorbed. <laughs> like, they think that they're a big stuff and they need a lot to justify it. And then when they don't get it, then they throw a tantrum and like, commit suicide with one of these nihilistic, you know, philosophical tragedies, right? But like... I mean, I, So the animal soul, like, the animal soul sends you running to the doctor's office. The animal soul might even send you to become a doctor because it's good, it's good pay, it's, you know, and you're under the delusion that pay in, increases the quality of your life, right? And you forget about, like, how hard it is to be a doctor and have a family. Whatever, fine, okay, right? The rational soul, yeah? The animal soul may make you a doctor because... When you know, you've noticed for yourself that when you help people, you feel really good and you want, you want more of that. And you realize that a doctor is a way to like make money and get that good feeling. And so you go to become a doctor, right? All that's all natural soul, right? That's all the animal soul. But you could also become a doctor because like you want to cure cancer. Like you feel a calling. Like there's like, like you could achieve something amazing that would justify and like, or you could just find like, the very fact that knowing more about the human body makes life worth living. It's just, it's, it's just an incredible thing. And how could, I, like, how could I just ignore that and just like, have this pedestrian life of getting up and going to work and watching television like that? Blech. That's not life. That's not, that's not worth existing. That's right. So, so do you see, like, you, no godly soul, there's, like a, there's an implicit existential conflict in every human being, right? Is life an end in and of itself and we're just trying to preserve and enhance its quality that's the animal soul or is life something that needs to be justified and without justification it's, 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 it's repulsive it's abominable in other words am I trying to make do with the reality as I have it or am I trying to seek out something higher than myself good okay now if we're going to be honest Actually, no, we're gonna, we're gonna, so we have that. Now we're going to take that and we'll move it on to the... Now, with a Jew, a Jew has how many souls? No, what did we just learn? Three. They have an animal soul. They have a rational soul. They have a godless soul. So the animal soul is busy trying to feel, preserve and feel good about life and live life, right? The rational soul is seeking out something higher than oneself in order to justify one's own existence, right? What is the godly soul? It's seeking out God. Why? This is a review from the last class. I haven't told you. Why is it seeking out God? Right. In other words, seeking out God, it, God is the end. God is not a means to quality of life, and God is not a means to justify my existence. Right? God is the end. Okay? So, I have this cup. 
And the animal still looks at the cup and thinks, how can I use the cup to enhance my life? Or, in the negative, how do I make sure that the, my life doesn't get ruined by this cup? So therefore, it like, uses the cup to drink from it and make sure not to spill the cup, right? The rational soul looks at the cup and says, in what way can I use this cup to justify? Could I learn, can I learn some deeper truth about reality from the cup? Can I, can I use the cup in the service of some mission? Like it, it, it has a very different way of relating to the cup. And the godly soul is like, where's God? Where's God? I, I, I see a cup. This is disturbing. There shouldn't be a cup. There should be God. Now, it's all funny when you talk about a cup. What if you look in yourself? So the godly soul is busy trying to find God, not just out there, but also in here. And um, fortunately, there's a lot of other stuff there. Okay. So now, do you think, okay, do you think that the animal soul and the godly soul could have a productive discussion? We're going to pretend they're different people now. I know they're all kind of existing in one body, but let's pretend that they're in different places and they're sitting across the table. Could the godly soul and the animal soul have a productive discussion? No. no. Why not? It's two completely different agendas. Yeah, but, but it's not just different. Let's think about, let's flesh it out because every soul has a different agenda and we're going to see that some souls do have productive discussions. I think they can have a productive discussion. How? Explain how that dialogue goes. Right, but the problem is that what you've done is you've adopted a view where you can see two sides of an issue. The souls don't see two sides of the issue, right? When, you, when the godly soul talks, it, do, it doesn't put things in terms of what you get benefit from it. It's not capable of doing that. It doesn't recognize that as a legitimate thing. I guess it's convenient that they're both inside. Well, it's actually, that, that doesn't solve the problem. Yeah. I, I I know you can see both sides. We're going to come back to that. But the godly soul cannot see the animal soul's point of view at all. The animal soul says, how is this going to preserve and enhance my quality of life? And the godly soul's reaction to that is, who cares? That doesn't matter. Even though it may in fact be that living God's life would enhance your quality of life, the godly soul can't say it. The godly soul can't get out of its mouth, metaphorically speaking, this will make your life better. Because it doesn't matter. It sees that as silly. It sees that as stupid. Like, there are times where you might agree in practice, but you disagree in principle. So you, you, and, and you're coming from that point of principle, coming from the point of what really matters. So the animal soul says, how will this make my life better? And the godly soul says, it doesn't matter. Well, the animal soul says, well, leave me alone. That's the end of the discussion. That, like, that's really, that's how discussions between the godly soul and animal soul go. They, 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 yeah. Now, what about the rational soul and the animal soul? Can they have a discussion? Can they have a discussion? So the, ra- the animal soul says, how's this going to enhance my quality of life? And the animal soul, the rational soul can say, well, you know, like a purposeless life is like really miserable, right? You, you've seen that, right? Okay. So maybe if you want a quality of life, maybe you should kind of subordinate yourself to what I have to offer about looking for some higher purpose and stuff. Because you know how much of a living hell it's going to be when, when you lack that purpose. How about the highest purpose? Right, so th- th- that dialogue can happen, right? Does that dialogue actually sound familiar that happens inside people? Yeah. 
Yeah, okay. Right? So there's a dialogue between the rational soul and the animal soul that, that can be constructive or not, but there's, there's room for that to work, right? Okay, now let's talk about the rational soul and the godly soul. The godly soul, there's an ultimate truth, which is God. And the rational soul's response to that would be, I love ultimate truths. I've been looking for one. I couldn't find one. I went to Home Depot. They didn't have one. And you, you're offering ra- ultimate truths? I don't care what the cost is. I'm on board, right? So the rational soul can have a dialogue with the godly soul, which means any kind of interaction that is constructive between the, rational, between the godly soul and the animal soul is going to be, have to happen through the rational soul. And the animal soul is going to come in and be like, but I like doing things that are contrary to God's will. Right. It's saying like purpose. Right. Something's on the animal soul. Wait, 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 wait. Purpose is great. I like purpose, but I don't need that much purpose. Right. So you see, you see where this is happening, right? The, the animal soul is okay with the rational soul. They can have a dialogue, but it's not 100% on board. Right. And the rational soul is okay with the godly soul, but it's not still 100% on board with that. But now there's at least room for things to be communicated. And this actually starts to sound look like more like a person actually is. What is a person? A person is a rational soul trying to mediate the influences between the animal soul and in the case of a Jew, the godly soul. Right? With, let's think about it. What would it look like if, it, what would it look like if your rational soul just turned off completely? Would, would, would anybody relate to you as a human being? Like, even, the, even people, like, even people who are not so purpose-driven, like, in their head, they, they, they have to find some purpose in God officially. Like, I don't know, being the best at your, vi- like, playing a video game and getting to the next level. You have to do something to give yourself some kind of throw a bone to the rational soul because it's actually the thing that is the conscious framework that we're using to experience our life, ourselves, and the world around us is the rational soul. Which is why, we, which, which, which is the consequence of why, why, whenever we point something, it's point that we did it. We need to feel a need to rationalize it. In other words, you as a person, as a as a entity living this world, are not an animal soul. You're not a godly soul. You're not a body. What is the entity living in the world? The rational soul. Now, the problem is, for most of us, that rational soul is under the heavy influence of what? The animal soul. Right? There's a reason why it says the person doesn't say the rational soul because when, when I'm living my life and I say, I want this and I think this and this is my opinion, like who's, who's talking? The rational soul. Now, if I think about it, the rational soul is like, is like, is like the Jew in Shul. So there was one time the rabbi was in, in Shul and he's listening to two Jews argue about politics and he's very impressed at how well and you know, knowledgeable and opinionated and the, the, the people in his community are about politics. And the rabbi goes home and he opens the New York Times and he sees that the editorial was what one guy was saying that means the Wall Street Journal. He just realizes they're parroting what they read in the newspaper. Right? So our rational soul is very often, which is, right, we're our rational soul, but very often, what is our rational soul doing? It's just parroting what it's getting from the animal soul. It's like, I need purpose. And the animal soul and the, and the animal soul is like, yeah, purpose, purpose, purpose feels good. But you know what would feel really good? Like, feeling like you have enough in life is like a good purpose to strive for. And if your rational soul is not really strongly developed, it can buy into that. On the other hand, some people, that's like, what do you mean? That's not purpose. That's, that, that's like, that's, no, that's cheap. I need something more, right? So there's this conflict between who's, who, you know, in, in, it's, like, it's like ballroom dancing, right? Who's leading? 
right? If you watch ballroom dancing, good ballroom dancing, um, which I'm not advocating because you know, there's all those scenes issues, but as an idea, um, if you're watching good ballroom dancing, you can't tell one, it's not one person dragging the other person along. But in practice, it only works because one person is leading and the other person is following. Well, who's leading, the rational soul or the animal soul? That can fluctuate. But everything that's happening in your life is the rational soul. But is it the rational soul taking charge over the animal soul? Or is it the rational soul selling out to the animal soul? How's that dialogue going? Who's winning in that negotiation? Who's persuading who? It's still, okay. Yeah, so, they, I mean, they can, like, the desire for purpose and meaning can, can't come from the animal It wouldn't come on its own, no. It just happens to be that the animal soul recognizes that without it, it doesn't feel, life doesn't feel very good. But something as, like, concrete as, like, recognition, that's it. Yeah. Like yeah. Social recognition. Yeah. That could be something that a person like. You remember what I said that the the element all the souls have is an intrinsic desire for that thing or drive towards that thing. But what that thing actually looks like? Could the rational soul be convinced that that social recognition is purpose? Mm-hmm. And then you, that that yeah. people live their life that way, right? Some people are very driven to become famous. <laughs> Some people are very driven to cure cancer. Some people are very driven to figure out physics. Some people are driven to become famous, right? Some people are very driven that, you know, day-to-day life shouldn't be too stressful. <laughs> so the rational soul is not just another soul. In a sense, it's like it, that's, the, that's the locus. That's the person. As people, we are beings that are, we actually feel the need that something should have something higher than itself. And our animal soul just wants life to be continue and to be comfortable. And so the question is, what is the relationship between those two? Is the animal soul dragging down the rational soul or is the rational soul overcoming and educating the animal soul? But then you have the other side with a Jew is that as a Jew, your rational soul is getting messages from some other place, right? Which is the godly soul trying to give a sense that actually hey, there's an absolute truth here called God. Pay attention to that. And again, there we could have the question, right? How's that conversation happening? So in a Jew, what is the function of the rational soul then? What is its purpose? And this is different than between a Jew and a non-Jew. In a non-Jew, the rational soul just makes them not an animal. Makes them a person. But in a Jew, what does the rational soul do? It's a moderator. It's a moderator, exactly. It's a moderator. It's between the animal and the godly. But that's because that's what makes you a human being. And the problem is, Chassidus describes the animal soul as like different animals. Like some animal souls are like a cow or like a sheep. What is the representation of the rational soul? The, the godly soul is like a flame. What's the representation of the, the physical representation of the rational soul? Anyone know? A bird. Why a bird? It's an animal. It's an animal, but what does it do? It flies. It flies up. But do birds stay up? They have to come down. 
Remember what we said about the rational. So on the one hand, it seeks purpose and things higher than itself. On the other hand, it's all grounded in. And how important my life needs to be. So it's like a bird. It goes up, but comes down. It can't really go up. The flame, if you leave the flame to its own devices, it vanishes up into nothingness. Like That's like the godless one. It makes them a person. And by the way, that's why we have a mission. The mission says that every person is precious because they're made in the image of God. And they're especially precious because God made them know, let them know that. What's the image of God that every person is made in? Every person, not just Jews. It's the rational soul. And then it goes on to say, Jews are precious because they're considered God's children. And they're especially precious because God let them know that. What's that a reference to? The godly soul. Right? So the, the, and it's important. The, the rational soul, like people actually strive for things higher than themselves. Like that's what people do. All people do that. And even when people become really evil, they frame it that way to themselves because that's what a person is. And when you read about the animal soul in Tanya, it just seems like a, it, it, it doesn't seem like that. And the answer is because it's talking, about the, 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 it's talking about the influences that the rational soul is dealing with. The rational soul isn't like on its own. The rational soul is constantly, you know, in a non-Jew, c- contending with the, the, the animal soul's desire just to like in, live life and enjoy life. And in a Jew, it's in addition to contending with the godly souls, strive to make everything all about God because God is all that matters. So you can understand why the rational soul of a Jew is a little bit nuts. A little internal cacophony. So now all changes are going to happen. All real changes in life, all real growth in life happens because of what? Because things are working through which soul? In other words, real change is because you as a person, the person, the rational soul, has to actually go through the process of dealing with stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. The divine soul comes back as an animal. It generally goes back to what I said in the previous question. The answer class only happens to men because that's a, and um, it's extremely painful because the soul is not clothed in the body it, of the animal. It's kind of like hanging out there. So imagine like, instead, imagine like somebody ties you up in a, in, a, in a sack and like puts you in their car and drives around and does their stuff and you're just stuck there like listening and watching but you don't get to like actively express yourself and participate. It's pretty miserable. And then you just, the soul has to wait there until someone else does a mitzvah with that animal to rectify the soul. It's a horrible thing. They don't actually become the animal. All right. Yes. The other day when you were explaining the animal soul and the godly soul, you said that it's like with two different people. So does that mean now that there's now that we've learned about the rational soul, are we technically three different people, or is it because the rational soul is the moderator? We're still, it's like two different people because at the end of the day, the rash, everything has to work through the rational soul. So at the end of the day, is the rational soul end up, in ha- end up embodying the animal soul? Does it end up embodying the godly soul? It just stays in the it, it, it never really stays. That's why it's like a bird. It like ends up coming back down. Right? Think about like, you know, 
think about your great, you're, you're someone who's like totally devoted to like you know, these revolutionaries, these scientists, these people, like the rational souls, like really dominant, right? At the end of the day, like the, the, all that's happened is that their animal soul has become sufficiently convinced for the most part that this is worth it. And therefore they don't, they don't actually like are not ultimately in the grips of their animal soul. Um, and therefore they need to use things like, you know, it's, it's still ego-based, it's still self-centered and still all, you know. um, The only way to truly free yourself of the influence of the animal soul totally would be, like, like would be the godly soul, but that can only work through the rational soul. So now what does this mean? When the person fortifies his divine soul, why does the divine soul need fortification? Yeah, but, but this is a distinct act from waging a war against the animal soul. Notice he just breaks it into two acts in the text. We're really flying through the text, aren't we? <laughs> um, do you think the godly soul, being godly, really needs to be fortified? Or is it like malnourished or something? Have you ever had an argument with somebody where you know you're right? Like, you know. It's like not even, it's not even a question. You're obviously right. But your argument is going nowhere. And so you just like kind of withdraw. And it's kind of pointless. Now, that would be not such a great thing. What happens if you really know you're right? You're proving to argue with the person. But the person is actually quite skilled at arguing. And I mean in the constructive sense, the skill of argumentation. And they realize that like just making arguments... Um, the, 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 that, that, that shut the other... Oh, I'm sorry. That just was off they shut the other person down that's not constructive. So they like go out of their way to make the most generous argument on your behalf in ways that you couldn't even necessarily come up with. Um, and as they do so, which sometimes happens, as you play devil's advocate to make your point as to why you disagree with the person, as you articulate their position, you come to realize that their position actually makes more sense. Right? So that would draw you into the argument because like, wow, you, like, you're, you're, you're put my case better than I put it myself. Like, like, yes, that's exactly what I meant. I'm like, oh, well, if that's what you meant, I guess I don't disagree with you anymore. Right? That would be very constructive, right? So what happens when the rational soul, instead of engaging in life in a way that dismisses the godly perspective, engages in life in such a way that draws the godly perspective, the godly soul into it, to the point that the rational soul starts buying into that? What would we call that in the text? Our English translator calls it fortifies the divine soul. The actual Hebrew is a little bit just more direct. It's magbir. It's making it more powerful. In other words, what is this describing? That the rational soul has, is doing what? Is really engaging in trying to really understand and make sense of the divine soul's perspective, what the divine soul is really trying to say. And as it does that, the divine soul becomes a more powerful force in the person's life, right? And if the, the, the rational soul doesn't do that, the divine soul becomes withdraws, it becomes less of a force in the person's life. 
Does that make sense? Okay, what have we spent the last hour and 15 minutes doing? Why? Why? We understand how we can, and as Jews, seek our purpose as we understand where both souls are coming from. Why? We have to rationalize everything. Why? Because we have a rational soul. What? Because our rational soul needs to rationalize. Yeah, but why do we need to know that? Like, why don't we do something else? We could rationalize, like, why plastic is flexible. So we can also. In a chemistry class. So what have we spent the last hour and 15 minutes doing is trying to get our rational soul to really understand the, the godly soul's way of looking at things. But the way the godly soul would see the value in the rational soul and its ability to reach the animal soul, which it has no contact with, right? And so now, do we actually did that in a very tiny, 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 tiny little way. In fact, all of the Hasidic lifestyle of the learning Hasidus and practicing Judaism of Hasidus goes into one of two categories, fortifying the divine soul or, as we'll talk about in the next class, waging a war against the animal. We're going to talk more about that, but that's the next class, really to develop more what is the fortifying of the divine soul and waging war against the animal soul. But that, the, that is happening in how the rational soul relates to the other two souls. And it's the rational soul. In some sense, you don't count it amongst the group. There's a reason why we, we say a Jew has two souls because the rational soul isn't isn't a party to the thing in the same sense. The rational soul is much more, the rational soul is much more the mode in which we live life as human beings, period. And so everything ends up coming through that filter. And therefore it ends up being the intermediary, the bridge between any, of any parts of ourselves. Okay, that makes sense? Which is also in the news the altar, but doesn't try and get into arguments of like trying to persuade you that stuff is true and you should do it. He just puts it as like, this is reality. Because guess which soul is really responsive to reality as it is? The rational soul, right? That's why scientists, like, the drive to study science is part of the rational soul. Because like, the fact that the universe works this way is a compelling enough reason to understand it. Like, I don't, the scientist doesn't feel like, well, what, how is that going to be useful? Like, who cares how it's useful? That's the way it is. That's good enough. That's, that's, that, the truth justifies it, seeking it out. Um, there are many books of Judaism that actually try and persuade you. And what they're trying to do is shift you from an animal soul perspective to a rational soul. You don't want to be an animal, do you? Right? But who's that talking to? That's talking to the animal soul, feeling really bad, feeling, feeling egotistical, not wanting to feel like you're such a low person, so then that makes you more receptive to the rational perspective. But right, that goes back to that general. That general was manipulating the balance between the two souls. But the time is written to, or as, as the old Hasidic mentors used to say, the Tanya assumes you're a mensch. Uh, assumes you're a, a, a reasonable human being, a person. A person who seeks to live life as a person. And then, given this is the truth of what a Jew is, you relate to that differently. 
towards the divine soul? Is that just title? I don't know. Um, it would probably look much more like like the early, early chassidus of the Alter Rebbe, which is hard to understand. Do we have any early chassidus of the Alter Rebbe? Oh, we have Skesar Shemto. So that's good enough. It would probably look something like this. This is something that's directed entirely at the godly soul, okay? Okay. Every Jew, even the simplest, can be a servant of God. But that's it. Like, there's no, there's no, like, the entire thing. Like, who reacts to that? What? The godly soul. Yes! Yes, I can. Right? Okay, I'm going to do another short one. Even the greatest need to learn from the simplest. That the simplest are whole in their essence. Like, I mean... I mean, like, if I have to start explaining that, I'm ready, it's not the godly soul, right? If you can just, like, if that changes your life on its own without explaining it, right? If you want to know what chassidus was like before the altar, but that was what chassidus was like. And, like, the Bosheth would say that, and that would touch somebody and would change their life, and that would wake up the godly soul. And that was, but this is that, what we're learning is not that. I mean, it's, it's, it's for the same purpose, but it is structurally different. All right, tomorrow, like I said, we will start talking about the fortifying and the waging the war and what that means. In Hasidus? Some of my, um, in the introduction to...